Thank you, James and team. It's so good to sing with you all. Um, go ahead and take a seat. And I'd love for you to join me in prayer. Um, Father God, we do praise and thank you for your amazing grace. It really is such a sweet sound amidst all the other noise our lives are filled with. There's bad news, there are damaged relationships, big emotions, and there's the sweet sound of your grace. We each want to thank and praise you for your grace right now, whether it's for the grace that we saw when you first made yourself known to us and saved us from a very different path, or whether it's the grace we've seen in a recent situation or relationship or some other way. And so we'll individually give you our thanks and praise right now as we think about and remember your grace. Thank you, Lord. God, as we think about what you are doing here at PBCC, we also want to pray over the many um, outreach opportunities, and we want to lift these up to you um, that you've given us as a body. Um, Kids Club, Discovery Dinners, RSCP. Um, we thank you so much for providing the people and resources needed to make these outreach programs possible. And just for your spirit's work, bringing people who need you to our church campus and helping them connect um, with folks from our family. Um, we pray for your work um, in these people who are coming to know us and coming to know you. We pray they'd experience your love and presence. And Lord, that we would be a welcoming and safe family for them as they explore Christianity, as they ask questions, as they express doubts, um, and just as we do life with them. We also pray, Lord, as we think about those who we've sent out, our college students, um, who are now out in the world, taking classes, making new friends, joining clubs, um, God, we just pray for um, your provision for each of them and that as they explore and experience independence, um, God, that they would be drawn to you, that the foundation that you gave them here would continue to be their foundation. Um, may they experience you as their rock, as their circumstances change. And help those of us who are here, who know them, um, just remind us to check in with them, to remind them of our, our care for them, even from afar. So Lord, we, um, we also just thank you for this time to be together this morning as a family, um, to center our minds and hearts on you, um, to lift up um, prayers to you. We give you this morning as we go, um, as we hear Sean's sermon and then go out. Um, please give us ears to hear and receptive hearts. We love you, Lord. Amen. And then as we prepare to listen to Sean's sermon, um, I'm going to read from John 1 in preparation. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, 
and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. I'm going to invite Sean to come up and preach. All right. Thank you, Christine, and good morning. My name is Sean Reese. If you're new here, I'm one of the pastors here, and it's great to be with you this morning as we continue our studies through the sacred texts of the Passion Narrative according to John. You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? Sounds like a simple yes-no question, doesn't it? In our text today, that question is posed to Peter, the lead disciple of Jesus' followers. And for Peter, it seems like he should easily and proudly answer yes. After all, only a few hours earlier in an upper room somewhere in downtown Jerusalem, Peter had proudly declared his loyalty to Jesus, saying, I will follow you anywhere, Jesus. I will even lay down my life for you, Jesus. The others may give in. I never will, Jesus. And now, a few hours later, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? Peter's answer, I am not. He denies Jesus three times. All four Gospels contain Peter's failure. Why? His friends could have saved his reputation and just cut out that story, right? They could have protected his reputation. But could it be, could it be that Peter wants his story in there because he recognizes his story of failing will help future disciples learn the nature of true discipleship. Let's pray. Well, Father God, through your spirit, we pray that you would open the eyes of our heart this morning, that we may see you more clearly and become more conformed into the image of your great son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, last week we opened the passion story with Jesus' arrest in the garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas had brought a mob with him to arrest Jesus. 
And in those 12 verses, John set us up for the rest of the narrative. And particularly, there were four points he made to make sure we read the rest of the story well. Number one, we know Jesus is the one in charge of the events. All the other characters in the story may think they're running the show, but they're not. Jesus is running the show. Number two, we know Jesus watches out for those he loves. The disciples don't need swords because they're in the hands of the great I am. Number three, we know what is happening is the will of Jesus' Father. What will happen will not be a mistake. Jesus will drink the cup the Father has given him to drink for the life of the world. And number four, we know who it is who is going to the cross. Answer, the great I am. God is the one they arrested in the garden. God will be interrogated in our text today. And God will ultimately hang on that cross. So now that we have that in place, we can now preview our text for today. After Jesus' arrest, he's led away to several interrogations. There's so much to say around these interrogations, but one important thing to say up front is this. Although Jesus is in the dock, so to speak, throughout these interrogations, he's not the one on trial. The ones actually on trial today are, one, the religious leaders as represented by Annas and Caiaphas. And two, the disciples, as represented by Peter. Yes, religion is on trial today. Both interrogations will happen at exactly the same time. And John takes us back and forth between the two. Jesus first, then Peter, then Jesus, then Peter. And why does John do this? Well, as most scholars recognize, John is setting up a dramatic contrast for us. And what we'll see is that Jesus will stand before his questioners and deny nothing, while Peter stands before his questioners and denies everything. So I invite you into our text today, beginning in chapter 18, verse 12. This is the first scene of Jesus' interrogation. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Well, we are very early on Good Friday. The mob arrests and binds Jesus and takes him to Annas. Why Annas? John tells us that Caiaphas... Um, is the actual high priest. And Caiaphas is Annas' father-in-law. So, 
Why does he take him to Annas if Caiaphas is the high priest? It's a bit confusing, isn't it? So a little history lesson, quick history lesson. From what is known, Annas was the patriarch of the high priestly family during this time period. He had been selected as high priest in AD 6, and he stayed high priest through AD 15. But in AD 15, Annas was removed from office by the Roman governor at the time. The Romans then appointed the successor to Annas. Now this didn't sit well with the Jews because the Old Testament said that the high priest was appointed for life. And so Annas was still considered to be the real high priest by the Jews, regardless of what Rome said. So Jesus is appropriately led to Annas first, even though Caiaphas is the official high priest. Now, John is also careful to add in these verses that Caiaphas was the one back in chapter 11 who said, it is better for you that one man should die for the people than the whole nation perish. As I said then, Caiaphas is simply saying what Jesus himself has already said in this gospel. In chapter six, Jesus said he would give himself for the life of the world. In chapter 10, he said, he said that he as the good shepherd would lay down his life for the sheep. So Caiaphas is simply repeating Jesus' words. He's repeating the gospel. God can use anyone to prophesy. He can even use a donkey as he did in the Old Testament. Remember that in Numbers? And here John reminds us that God announced the gospel through a high priest who wanted to destroy Jesus. Meanwhile, Peter enters his interrogation. Verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. So all the other disciples have deserted Jesus. Except for an unnamed disciple and Peter. The unnamed disciple is usually understood to be John, the writer of this gospel. I agree, and apparently John's family is related to or friends with the high priestly family, which allows him to go inside the courtyard and bring Peter with him. Peter. How about a short history lesson of Peter? 
He's the most famous of the 12. He is the lead disciple. And he's had several noteworthy moments throughout the Gospels. In this Gospel, he's the first person in which Jesus promises transformation. In chapter one, Jesus says, you are Simon, you shall be called Kephas, which means Peter or rock. You're shifting sand now, Simon. Someday you'll be rocky. Also in this gospel, after the crowd stopped following Jesus, Jesus says to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Peter replies with, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. In the other gospels, Peter is the first one to confess that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Peter, Peter is the only other person besides Jesus to walk on water. <laughs> He's definitely had some noteworthy moments. And he's now on trial. And a lowly, statusless servant girl, who John seems to emphasize, correctly thinks Peter is one of Jesus' disciples. So she asks him. And Peter responds with, I am not. Peter fails before a lowly servant girl. How do you think he felt in that moment? Only a few hours ago, I will lay down my life for you, Jesus. I am not. Well, maybe, maybe he's thinking, well, this isn't a real test. She's only a lowly servant girl. John then gives us a really important detail. Peter and the others are warming themselves next to a charcoal fire. John is careful to tell us what kind of fire it is. It's a charcoal fire. It's not just any old fire. It's a charcoal fire. Meanwhile, back to the interrogation of Jesus, verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Well, scene two gives Jesus a chance to say that he has spoken openly to the world, which he has. 
A primary example is his last public sermon earlier that week when the crowds are streaming into Jerusalem. He said these famous words, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That was his last public sermon for all to hear. And it's obviously a key to the unfolding events in this uh, that we're now reading. Well, after Jesus says he has spoken openly to the world, one of the officers strikes him, to which Jesus responds, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong, but if what I said is right, why do you strike me? In this interaction, Jesus is simply wanting a fair trial. That's what he's saying. In particular, he wants them to call in witnesses for a trial. He knows the first century law that witnesses were to be brought in before the high priest. In fact, a defendant was not to be interrogated until the witnesses arrived. Regardless, nothing of great significant happens here in these scenes before the high priest. And throughout this text, John repeats the word for high priest eight times. Seems like a lot. And I think John also, as we saw, he's creating some confusion around the role of high priest. And I think it's because he wants the reader to question who is the real high priest. I think John is bringing that to the surface here. Bernard, of course, just spent several weeks in Hebrews exploring this theme. So let me review a bit. In the Old Testament, among the many priests, one was selected as the high priest. Whereas the king represented God to the people, the high priest represented the people to God. As I said earlier, he was appointed by God for life to intercede for the people by offering sacrifices for the people and for himself. And this allowed for sinful people to approach a holy God. Or as Bernard put it, the various sacred rites of the high priest allowed a holy God to dwell in the midst of a sinful people. And here in John, standing before the reigning high priest, Caiaphas, or is it Annas, is Jesus, arrested and bound and in control of the situation. He, Jesus, will walk through these events as an act of surrender, as a sacrificial offering, as a grain of wheat. He's the true high priest, offering himself as the sacrifice. And as Bernard also taught us in Hebrews, Jesus is the one offering the sacrifice, and he's also the sacrifice. And through his sacrifice, as Hebrews says, he became the source of eternal salvation 
to all who believe. So Jesus is the true high priest. Although he's not being treated like one, he's sure acting like one. Meanwhile, the religious leaders who are really on trial here are failing. So let's go back to the interrogation of Peter, verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Oh, Peter. As Jesus, or sorry, as Judas stood with the darkness in the garden, Peter now stands with the darkness in the courtyard. And the group around the fire repeat the servant girl's accusation. Peter again denies it. I am not. Peter, here's your chance. Here's your chance to shine, Peter. I am not. A servant of the high priest then repeats the accusation. Peter again denies it for a third time. The narrator doesn't even say what Peter said because we already know what he said. I am not. And the rooster crows, fulfilling Jesus' prediction. How does Peter now feel? We all know, don't we? We all know. We know he feels awful. The other gospels tell us that Peter went out and wept bitterly. We know he feels like a failure. We know he now feels disqualified to be a disciple of Jesus. It's a sobering moment for the lead disciple. And Jesus just lets it happen. Luke says Jesus could see Peter in the courtyard. So Jesus could have helped Peter, couldn't he have? Jesus could have called out to Peter, Peter, tell him you're one of mine. Peter, be strong and courageous. But he doesn't. Jesus lets Peter fall. Why? Because in that moment, Peter has to learn the nature of true discipleship. In that moment, Peter discovers he cannot make it on his own. Peter discovers he cannot be the disciple he wants to be on his own. I will lay my life down for you, Jesus. I'll follow you anywhere, Jesus. 
Peter must be humbled. Even more, Peter must be undone. Peter has to learn that he must die to himself in order to live. Like the prodigal son, Peter must be brought to the end of his senses to wake up. Peter had tried to be the hero and failed. And you know what? That's okay. Because Jesus doesn't want heroes. He wants disciples. Heroes think they can do everything on their own. Heroes think they don't need any help. Heroes think they're self-sufficient. Jesus lets Peter die the hero so that he may learn the nature of true discipleship. This is actually good for Peter. Because disciples know they can't make it on their own. Disciples know the path of true discipleship is to lose one's life. Disciples know the path of true disciple. discipleship is becoming a grain of wheat, just like their master. Dying to self, safe self-will, self-sufficiency, self-empowerment. Disciples know they must die to thinking they are experts about life and choose instead to follow Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. Disciples know they are utterly dependent on Jesus for everything. As Jesus had said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me and I in you, for apart from me, you can do nothing. And Jesus intends to teach Peter and us that truth. And we know don't we, that Jesus is dependable. He is trustworthy. He is faithful. As Peter has denied everything, Jesus has denied nothing. He's the faithful one. He's the rock. On Christ, the solid rock, we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Peter had to learn that truth. And this is where he learns it. But Peter also learned another great truth in this story. He discovers that Jesus will not let him on the ground. Peter fails, but failure does not have to be final. After all, Jesus wants Peter to be a disciple. And so Peter also discovers in this story the greatness of grace. As we read in our scripture reading, Jesus, he brings in the the era of grace and truth and from his fullness of grace and truth we receive grace upon grace. 
few years ago, a group of us were sitting on a beach and one of my friends did a devotional for us. And as we watched the waves crash, my friend said, think of that as God's grace washing over us. Wave upon wave upon wave, grace upon grace upon grace. His grace is greater than our failures, amen? So where's the grace in this story? Answer, the charcoal fire. John told us it was a charcoal fire. It wasn't just any fire. It was a charcoal fire. From that day on, every time Peter would smell a charcoal fire, what do you think he would think? Failure, right? He would think of his denials. He would think of his, I am not. Our sense of smell is very powerful, isn't it? It just turns out that in Liberia, they make a lot of charcoal fires. <laughs> and so every time we fly there, we land, uh, we get to walk across the tarmac, which is fantastic, and, and I can smell the charcoal burning. And memories and friendships just flood back into my mind. For Peter, every time he smelled a charcoal fire, from that point forward, he would, he would think failure. But failure doesn't have to be final. And it wasn't for Peter. Later that day, Jesus would die on that cross and Peter would think it was all over. There was no way to fix his failure. But three days later, everything changes. Jesus is resurrected. But through it all, there's that smell that horrible smell of the charcoal fire, the smell of, I am not. But then a few weeks after the resurrection, Peter and some other disciples have gone back to Galilee to go fishing. Peter thought he was disqualified for discipleship, so he decided to go back to what he knew best, fishing. But Jesus doesn't think Peter is disqualified. So while they're fishing, Jesus appears on the beach. And what does he build? A charcoal fire. John 21.9. Peter and the others come ashore, and what do you think Peter felt at that point when he smelled the charcoal fire? What did he think when he stood face to face with the man he denied he knew over another charcoal fire? Well, around that charcoal fire, Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? Peter answers yes three times. Why three times? One, for each of the times Peter said, I am not. The great I am heals Peter's I am not. 
Peter, you can't stand on your own. Peter, you're not your own Savior. Peter, you're not your own Lord. Peter, you're not the way, the truth, or the life. And Jesus says, I am. Jesus redeems the charcoal fire by covering Peter in grace upon grace upon grace. During that conversation, Peter discovers amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Failure doesn't have to be final in Jesus' kingdom because there's grace upon grace upon grace like the waves of the ocean. And Peter is transformed into Rocky, which we see in Acts and his letters, don't we? And so moving forward, because we've had wave upon wave upon wave of grace crashing over us, we can turn to others and offer grace, can't we? That's the ripple effect of grace. We can love because he first loved us. We can extend forgiveness because we've been extended forgiveness. We can extend compassion because we've been shown compassion. We are all works in progress. So can we not offer space for others to be works in progress? And this is why, as a church, we do things like RSCP, the Discovery Dinner Outreach, the Prison Ministry, Abrahamic Alliance, Mexico, Liberia. We do all these things because failure doesn't have to be final for others because it's not final for us. Amen? Amen. Well, this time I'm gonna call up the worship team and we get to come to the table today. We get to celebrate God's waves of grace. Every time we celebrate communion, we celebrate the gift of grace for this is the table of grace. We come to the table as sinners in, needs of, in need of grace, like Peter. And our host, the Lord Jesus Christ, meets us with open arms, full of grace and forgiveness and compassion. In the Gospels, Jesus made a habit of eating with sinners. So at this table too, the table of grace. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the free gift of God. Now receive this benediction, which appropriately comes from the hand of Peter. As you go, may our great God give you more and more grace 
and peace as you grow in your knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. For by his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. Go in peace. Amen.